Our passage this morning is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. And I'm just going to quickly read it for you. Now about the brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And in fact, you do love all the brothers through Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, so that you will not be dependent on anyone. As we begin this message this morning, let me ask uh, you, uh, let me tell you a riddle and see if you can answer this riddle. What is something that you all desire and yet when you demand it, you get less of? What is something that we all yearn for and desire and yet when we demand it, we get less of? Now, the answer to that riddle is a, 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 a six-letter word. It's R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Uh, the word is respect. And in 1967, Aretha uh, Franklin uh, sang this song that became a hit. Uh, it's really about gaining respect. And when you hear this word, it is a word that I think a lot of us, that's something that we all want, something that we desire, whether it's with our classmates at school, whether it's people that we work with, or even in our marriages. Respect is something that we yearn for, and yet when we demand it, we get less of. We all want respect in our jobs, and we want our bosses to respect us, and if we're a boss, we want our employees to respect us. And in marriages, if you think about it, respect is one of the fundamental uh, foundations in, in marriage. A few years ago, there was a book by uh, Dr. Emerson uh, Egrich, and he wrote a book entitled Love and Respect. And in this book, he writes this, we believe love best motivates a woman and respect most powerfully motivates a man. Research reveals that during marital conflict, a man most often reacts unlovingly when he feels disrespected. We asked 7,000 people the question, when you are in conflict with your spouse or significant other, do you feel unloved or disrespected? 83% of the men said they felt disrespected, and 82% of the women said they felt unloved. In other words, those are really kind of uh, the, the, the coin, uh, two sides of the same coin. That men, by, by our very nature, there's this desire to be respected. But this is what happens in marital conflict. When men want to be respected, instead of gaining respect, they get the opposite, and that is contempt. Uh, Dr. John Gottman a famous uh, marital psychologist wrote a book called The, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. If you've ever been through any marital therapy or counseling, this is one of the books that they give you. And this guy, John Gottman, predicted 90% accuracy of couples who will end up in divorce. And the number one factor, he says, is contempt. Contempt is the most destructive of the four horsemen because it conveys I am better than you, and I disrespect you. It is so destructive. In fact, that couples who are contemptuous of each other are more likely to, likely to suffer infectious illness than couples who are not uh, showing contempt to each other. The target of contempt is made to feel despised and worthless. 
When you think about couples who have been married for so long and, and their marriages have been torn apart by disrespect and contempt, what ends up happening is that eventually that marriage will either dissolve by divorce or just kind of dissolve uh, through uh, a, a lack of intimacy. And you see this happening all the time. And so respect is, is foundational not only in terms of our job places, but it's also foundational in terms of our, our family dynamic. But there's another relationship with respect is important, and that's when we talk about evangelism. When we talk about our relationship with those who are outside the church, respect is fundamental in bridging the gospel to those who are on the outside. So in chapter 4, verse 12, the very last thing that Paul says in this passage is this, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. That Paul's goal in writing this passage was to remind the Thessalonian church that their lives do matter and their daily life matters. And our life does matter in the way we interact with those who are on the outside. See, a lot of times Christians sort of have this uber-Christian mentality that, hey, let's just create our own little uh, a fortress. Let's do our own little thing. Let's play our own little music. Let's play our own little gathering called Sunday service. And we inter- uh, interact very little with those around us. But the early church realized something, that the gospel was not meant to be kept in a bottle. It's, it wasn't meant to be enclosed. It was meant to be shared and expanded. We are called to be salt and light to our community. And so throughout this uh, section in chapter 4, Paul sets the distinction of what a Christian is to the world outside. And then in chapter 4, last week, uh, Pastor Mike talked about the importance of sanctification, that one of the ways in which we show the world the reality of Jesus is how we live our lives in terms of being sanctified, to be cleansed, to be holy, and especially in regards to the whole idea of physical intimacy. In chapter 4, he says this in verse 3, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathens that do not know God. See, the early church, they had the same culture that we have, which is a culture of, of individual self-gratification. Whatever we can do to gratify our, our, our flesh is what people wanted. And that's, that's from all of human history. That's, that's the beginning of, of, of what sin is. It basically says, my desires are more important than God. And so we see this happening in the early church. And so imagine Paul going to this city of Thessalonica, preaching the gospel. Some of these people have come to know Jesus. And now they're asking the question, how can I live differently as a Christian in a secular world? And one way that Paul says is that make sure that you live your lives in such a way that when non-Christians see you, that your sexual ethic is different than the world's ethic. That your definition of love is different than the world's definition of love. And he continues on now, and he says to to the Thessalonians is this. Also remember this, that how you live your life will gain the respect of those on the outside. And I think it's important for us as Christians that one of the the challenges for us is that when non-Christians see us, they either see us as people who are hostile to them, who are hypocrites, or people that are sort of kind of weird to kind of doing their own little thing. Either we have become obsolete or we have become sort of an obstinate kind of distraction to the world. And so when they see Christians, they don't see a positive example of what it means to follow Jesus. So here's what Paul is saying. 
that if you want to gain the respect of those who are outside of the church, there are three things that we need to do. And so the summary of the sermon is really this. To gain the respect of outsiders, we need to demonstrate three things. Brotherly love, minding our own business, and working hard. Now, this is not what you would put in a list of, of gaining the respect from the outsider. Because here's what, how many of us think. That to gain respect from those on the outside, we need to be engaged in politics. We need to win the political battle. We need to establish laws. We need to change people's minds about the issues of social justice. And we begin to think that the way in which people are transformed is external. But what Paul is saying is something different. He's saying, if you want to gain the respect from outside, there are three simple things that Christians need to do. So I want to sort of unpack these three things and, and show you why it's so important that Paul is saying this. The first thing he says in verse 9 and 10 is to demonstrate brotherly love. Now, in verse 9, he says, Now about the brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers through Macedonia, and yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. The first admonition is to love each other even more than you are loving. Now, the idea of love is, is, is important because it's contrasted to a different type of love in the first uh, eight verses. The world's idea of love, by the way, the Greeks had many words for love. Uh, they were much more specific. We say, I love you, it can mean I love you to this or I love you to that. And it, 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 I love a hot dog or I love my wife. I mean, for, it's the same word, but yet it has different contexts. Well, the Greeks were much more specific with love. The first sort of base idea of love was this romantic physical love. And so we would call that eros love, erotic love. And oftentimes that type of love was very selfish, very individualistic. It was my desire. So Paul is addressing that in the first eight verses. But then in verse 9, he switches the word. He doesn't use the word eros. He uses the word phileo. Uh, uh, actually, it's the word, uh, it, we get the modern word, Philadelphia. Uh, phileo, Adelphia. Adelphia means uh, brother uh, and sister. It was an expression that was attached to one's blood relative in the secular sense. But the Christians took the word Philadelphia, and by the way, we have a city named after that, the city of brotherly love. And they took it to mean the, the spiritual family of God. And here's where Christian uh, community radically changed the way in which people lived. You see, the Romans were very focused on individuality. So you had the immediate family, which were your blood relatives. But beyond that, it was every man or every woman for themselves. Well, when Jesus enters the picture, the thing that unifies us is not our blood relationship anymore. What unifies us is the blood of Jesus. So whether you and I are physically related, it doesn't matter anymore because the common blood that runs through us is the blood of Jesus. And so it creates a new community. It creates a new family called the family of God. It's what I would call community love. And I think one of the things that the world is, is looking for more and more, because we are living in an isolated society. I imagine somebody sitting sort of at a park or uh, near the beach, and all they're doing is just kind of looking out into the horizon, and there's nobody around them. That's the world that we live in. And technology hasn't brought us closer together. It's actually created a, a greater sense of isolation. And this is why Christian community is so powerful 
is that we are willing to love each other. We are willing to sacrifice each other, with each other. And Jesus says this in, uh, in John chapter 13, 34, a new command I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. The very basis, the very uh, characteristic of what it means to be a Christian is that we love one another. And I think even in our churches today, our churches are designed where you come to hear a sermon, sing a song, and go home, and there's very little interaction beyond the Sunday morning. But the biblical idea of the church is that we are called to be a community, a family that loves each other, that supports each other, that is willing to help each other through the trials and difficulties of life. Actually, one of the interesting studies that I've read is that Individualistic societies actually create health problems for the society itself. Uh, in Somerset, England, there was a, a dramatic fall of emergency hospital admissions when they enacted a new project. The source of this medical breakthrough was surprising. They looked at all the different factors. What will actually decrease emergency admissions? And what they found out was this, that if the people were part of a community, that actually, it would actually decrease their emergency hospital admissions. After the trial study, the data showed that when isolated people who had health problems are supported by community groups and volunteers, the number of emergency admissions to hospitals falls spectacularly. One doctor remarked, no other interventions on record have reduced emergency admissions across the population. You know, one of the sad realities of our culture is, is, is the rise of, of, of mental illness. And one of the things about mental illness is that it, it tends to isolate you from other people. One of the greatest things that we as a church can do is to love those who are unlovable. To love those who are hurting and broken. That we form together a community that are willing to support each other through some of the most difficult, challenging things of life. And that's what Philo... Adelphia means. It's a community of people that are bonded together in family. And that's the first thing that Paul mentions. That if we want to gain the respect from outsiders, look at how we treat each other. Are we truly loving each other? Are we helping each other? Supporting each other? Even if that person has treated us bad. See, what the world sees is, is, is eye for an eye. If, if you do me wrong, I do you wrong. But the Christian community, even if we do each other wrong, that the basis of our relationship is the forgiveness because of Jesus forgiving us. But the second factor in gaining respect from outsiders is minding your own business. Now, what does he mean by this? Look at verse 11. He says, then make it your ambition to lead a quiet life to mind your own business. Now, Paul is urging the Thessalonian church to lead a quiet life, to attend to their own concerns. What he means by that, and these two idioms are very similar, it's the idea of principled withdrawal. In other words, it's the idea of don't cause trouble unnecessarily. Lead a life that is focused on taking care of what you need to take care of. See, you know, one of the things about uh, the internet that's kind of interesting is that it allows us to sort of get involved in other people's lives. I'm not sure if you've ever been on a forum where, you know, you go on Facebook and you comment about a political issue, and then all these other Christians uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, start arguing, and it becomes an unhealthy context. 
And, and, and that's what he's talking about. Don't unnecessarily engage in the public sphere to shame the name of Jesus. One of the uh, founders of Twitter wrote recently how he regretted uh, uh, starting Twitter. Evan Williams um, wanted to express his emotion and opinion. And so uh, May 2017, the article from New York Times, he says this, I think the internet is broken, he said. He has believed that for the few years, actually, things are getting worse. And it's a lot more obvious to a lot of people that it is broken. People are using Facebook to showcase suicides, beatings, and murder in real time. Twitter is a hive of trolling and abuse, and it seems un unable to stop. Fake news, whether created for ideology or profit, runs rampant. Four out of ten adult users of the Internet said they have been harassed online. And then he says this at the very end of the article. I thought once everybody could speak freely and exchange information and ideas that the world will automatically become a better place. Mr. Williams said, I was wrong about that. What he didn't account for was human nature or the sin nature. Because the very nature is that, that when we get angry, we lash out on other people. And the internet has now provided free, uh, sort of a free-for-all access to any issue. And so even Christians are notorious for that. That we become hostile to one another. We become hostile to other non-Christians. And so one of the things that Paul is saying here in this internet culture that we live in is make sure you take care of your own business first. Instead of criticizing those around you, live your lives in such an example that, that your personality, your, your demeanor is one that deserves respect, not just ask for it. Pastor uh, Scott Sauls is from uh, Nashville, Tennessee, and he used to work at a church called Redeemer Press under a man named Tim Keller, uh, who was a senior pastor. And he writes this about Tim Keller. That's interesting. He says, he writes that there are many ways that he saw Tim Keller model the gospel, there's, but there's one thing that really stood out to him. Sauls writes this, Tim Keller is the best example I have seen of someone who consistently covers with the gospel. Never once did I see Tim tearing down a person down to their face on the internet or through gossip. Instead, he seemed assumed good in people. He talked about being forgiven and affirmed by Jesus, how he frees us from all this for catching people doing good instead of looking for ways to be criticized, to be offended by. Even when someone had done wrong or been in error, Tim would respond with humble restraint and self-reflection instead of negative venting and criticism. I think that's a great example of a, of a mature Christian leader who lives in such a way that he's minding his own business. That instead of using his platform to attack others, that he is displaying the gentleness and the love of Christ. So the second way to gain respect is, another way to say this is this, not to be nosy busybodies. In 2 Thessalonians, later on in the other book that Paul writes, he says, we hear some of you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, but they are busybodies. Some people we commend and urge in the Lord Jesus to settle down and earn the food that they eat. In other words, there were Christians in the first century that were so nosy about other people's affairs. Do you know people like that? They're always looking in your medicine cabinet. They're always peering over your backyard to see, you know, what trouble that you're causing the neighbors. I mean, there are people that love to police other people. That's what he's saying. Don't do that. Instead, a, a, a Christian that polices themselves that we're so critical of others and not critical of, of ourselves.
But the third thing he says is when you lead a quiet life, doesn't mean you lead an idle life. It's the opposite. You lead a, work, a life that works hard. In verse 11, make your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you. And then he says in verse 12, so that your daily life may win respect of the outsiders, so that you will not be de dependent on anyone. The third thing he says is this, that the way you gain respect from those who are, who are non-Christians is that you, your work ethic becomes so high, that so, so honorable, that when people see you work hard, it actually begin, people begin to wonder, why is he working so hard? And here's the thing that Paul uh, challenges us as Christians, that when we work, we don't work for ourselves. We don't work to earn money. We work unto the Lord. Everything we do is for the kingdom and glory of God. See, there are some uh, Christians who had a bad theology. They, they viewed work as being negative. And, and some in, the, in this church in the first century uh, heard the message that Jesus was going to come back. Because Jesus had only died a few years before. So they were hearing this message that he will come back again. So many in the first century believed that Jesus would come back in the first century. And so some Christians did sort of the opposite of what Jesus commanded. Instead of working hard until Jesus came back, they decided to just become lazy. Some people actually sold their house or sold their business and just waited until Jesus came back. That's bad theology. So what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians is don't do that. Don't, because when you're idle, you become nosy and become busybodies. But instead of being idle, work hard for the Lord because you have no idea when Christ comes back. You know, I had a, a, a you know, bad theology, by the way, is infectious. It, it, uh, if you've ever been uh, heard, you know, this is like 20 years ago when the Y2K thing was going on, and when we're going to hit year 2000, everybody was freaking out. There were some Christians who actually thought Jesus was going to come back in the year 2000, and so they began to sell their property. Even a few years ago, there was a, a, a pastor that I heard about who told his congregation that Jesus was going to come back and the economy was going to tank, so you have to sell all your stocks and buy gold. And so the congregation followed this pastor and did that. The sad reality was that the gold dropped and stocks went up. And so they really became mad at the pastor. They kicked him out of the church. And, and the reality is that when we start sort of misapplying theology, instead of gaining respect from the world, we actually gain disrespect. So how do we gain respect from the world as Christians? Well, one simple thing is work hard. The idea, the idiom here, working with your hands, is the idea of just working hard for what you have been called to do. And it doesn't matter what it is. You could be a teacher. You could be a stay-at-home mom. You could be a, uh, you could be an engineer. You could be a business owner. Whatever it is, that as you work unto the Lord, then God uses that as a testimony, as a witness to the world around us. I remember uh, hearing about one man who uh, had a, uh, uh, a shop near Biola. And he was a Christian, and he refused to hire Biola students. And they asked him, so why, do you, why don't you want Biola students? He goes, well, Biola students, and, and this was way back when, but he said, oh, man, there's, some of them are so lazy. And, and, and they always, like, make excuses. And then he, his point was, you know, and they steal things from me. I would rather have non-Christians do that than Christians. And so often we Christians give people a bad name. And so one of the ways in which we give the name of Jesus, 
we, we honor is by the work that we do. You know, one of the sad realities is, 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 is you know, people uh, lie uh, about their jobs all the time or, or, or make up excuses. The Washington Post had this article, uh, excuses for being late at work, essentially the same in every industry. And they listed uh, 1,000 HR managers, and these are the top reasons why people, uh, how people would lie about their work. Uh, oversleeping, or traffic, number one, oversleeping, and weather. But among the most unique excuses of people making excuses, someone said, I was here but fell asleep in the parking lot. My fake eyelashes were stuck together, so I couldn't come in. The astrologer warned me of a car accident on the major highway, so I took all the back roads. Another one that really raised eyebrows was this one. I had morning sickness, and that was by a male employee. <laughs> So when you think about that, these are the excuses that people give. But here's the sad reality. We as Christians can give those same excuses. So here's a challenge to you. How's your work life? Are you prompt? Do you work hard or do you try to cut corners? And I think because the gospel has transformed our lives, that the way we work and how we work matters. I want you to notice the very last thing he says in, in this verse. He says this, so that, now this is the key, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. You know, oftentimes we as Christians think to attract the non-believers to the kingdom, that if we just do one nice thing, we show kindness or demonstrate generosity, these people will come to church. But you see, non-Christians are not impressed with one-time gifts of generosity, one-time acts of hospitality. You know what non-Christians are more impressed with? A consistent daily example of people who live like this in everyday life. You know what ends up happening when we do that? The gospel becomes real. And we demonstrate Christ because Christ has transformed us. He has given himself to us. He has worked in our hearts in such a way that we do this not just at, to earn righteousness before God. We do this to demonstrate righteousness before God. When people see Jesus in action, they are attracted to the gospel. There was a man named Chris many years ago who worked at a nursery farm in Long Island. And during the height of the growing season, about 20 other employees, mostly seasonal workers, came up from Central America to work at this farm. And they reported to Chris. Chris was a follower of Jesus. So he, tries, he tried to share Christ's love and treat each of his fellow workers with respect and dignity in Christ's words. In broken Spanish throughout the day, he would show his genuine interest in their lives getting to know them, hearing their stories, and asking about their lives. And most of the, the men who had come up from Central America made that small uh, yearning to, uh, to take back to their families in Central America. So he would sit down and ask them about their wives and children. And he says, sometimes I would even share Christ's love in practical ways by giving them a ride home or, 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 or buying them some food. But we also... Uh, would end each day by looking at each other in our eyes and we would say this, thank God for another day. One day, two men came up to Chris, two of his employees, Gonzalo and Daniel. And they wanted to show their appreciation for Chris, so they decided 
to Spurge on a special gift. They pooled their resources and they took out Chris for a very special dinner, a $7 value meal at local Burger King. By spending $3.50 a piece, Daniel and Gonzalo were giving their, a sacrificial gift. The week before they gave their gift, the storm had cut their work hours and their income in half, but they, it did not deter their generosity. Throughout, and Chris said this, throughout my life, I've been treated to some special meals and I've received some expensive presents, but this one gift I will treasure forever. During the meal at Burger King, Gonzalo and Daniel treated me like a king. I never knew fast food, burger and fries could taste the foretaste of a heavenly feast. All that happened was because Chris was willing to live his life on a daily basis to demonstrate Christian love, brotherly love, to lead a life of example, a quiet life that didn't intrude but was caring for them, a life in which he demonstrated the gospel by working hard. And I think the new apolog apologetic for our generation is not just theological arguments about the existence of God and about whether Jesus is this or that. The world, we could rationalize all those things and we could argue all that. But the thing that is the most important apologetic is the apologetic of the heart. What Paul is saying is this, you as, as Christians in this, in this community, you have been so transformed by the grace of God. Now, live in such a way that when non-Christians see how you treat each other, how you are not getting into other people's business, but that you are working hard with your hands, that that becomes the gospel attraction. Because if you think about what Jesus did for us, all those three things are made possible because of Jesus' death for us. That Jesus came and died so that he can create a new family. His blood now runs through all of us that we create this new family called the family of God, the church. That Christ demonstrated instead of when he was uh, spit upon, when he was cussed at, when he was literally beaten, that he didn't lash back at them. But he led a life of humility. And finally, Jesus demonstrated his work for us by dying upon the cross. That's the gospel message. And I think the gospel message reflected in our daily life becomes the aroma that smells good for the world around us. So as we close our time, I want us to take communion in a very special way. One, to be reminded of the work of Jesus. But secondly, to be reminded that you are the work of Jesus. That you will commit yourself to do those three things on a daily basis. That you would commit yourself to this family. That you would be sacrificial in loving each other. Don't make our church on Sunday morning only church. Let it be a church that in which we care for each other. Go have lunch together. Meet each other during the week, then pray for each other. Share each other's burdens. Also, be careful about what you post on the internet. Don't troll other people. Even if you feel strongly about an issue, be careful how you approach them. Do it in love. You don't have to answer every objection. And thirdly, work hard. Be a good student. 
be a good employee, be a good boss. And then one day, somebody may come to your door and say, could I buy you a Burger King meal? I want to know more about you. 